was just so sick. You have a lot of time to be with yourself. You have a lot of time to be in your own head. And so during that time, I came up with what I call my four truths. And these truths, I'll give them to you. I have them on a post-it note here in my office. So I see them multiple times during the day and they, they constantly get reinforced in my mind. And they're just one sentence each. So the first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. Yes. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain to make you stronger and more resilient. The third one I look at as a legacy type of truth, and it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one I think is pretty self-explanatory. It's as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I look at those four truths as what I call sort of the bedrock of my soul. They're just, a, they're just a good place to sort of anchor your life and to try to build a quality life off of. Welcome to today's episode of Unleash Thyself. I am your host, Konstantin Moron, and with me today I have the remarkable Terry Tucker. As an accomplished speaker, author, and personal growth advocate, Terry has channeled his diverse experiences and decade-long cancer journey into powerful wisdom, inspiring others to lead exceptional and extraordinary lives. Stay tuned as Terry shares invaluable insights on overcoming pain and building resilience. So, prepare yourself for an unforgettable conversation that should to leave a lasting impression. Welcome back to Unleash Thyself, the podcast that inspires and empowers you to unleash your full potential. I am thrilled to welcome Terry Tucker to the show. Terry, we can't wait to hear more about the experiences and insights that have led you to where you are today. And your unleashed moment, the moment you knew you were on your own path to becoming the best version of yourself. Terry, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Constantine, thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today, and I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I agree with that 100%. So thank you. Thank you, Terry. So let's talk a bit about your journey. Where would you like to start telling the audience about how your life was shaped up to lead you to where you are today, where you're inspiring so many people and you're sharing the challenges you've overcome and helping others that may face similar problems in life? In all honesty, I think it started for me with my family, with my parents. You know, I, I had absolutely great parents. I'm the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I actually went to college on a basketball scholarship. And I, I have another brother who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. Another brother who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National basketball association. So, you know, I feel sorry for my mom because there were no girls, there were no daughters. We were all running in a million different directions. We were all involved in sports from the beginning. And my parents did what I used to call divide and conquer parenting. I'd have a game on a particular night at a certain time at this place. My father would go to that and my brother would have a practice at the exact same time. And so mom would have to go to that. So my parents were all about teaching us the value of family of caring for each other, of supporting each other, of loving each other. And my story is not my dad was an alcoholic and he beat my mom. He didn't. They were really great people. So I think it started from there. I eventually went to college. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. 
And when I graduated, I'm really going to date myself now, but this is long before the internet was available to help people find a job. So I moved home to find that first employment. And I was lucky. I found the job in the marketing department at the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International Mm -hmm. Burger Chain. That was the good news. The bad news was that I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. As I said, professionally started out at Wendy's, then I moved to hospital administration, and then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of what I did during my law enforcement career was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After that, I started a school security consulting business, probably had the most challenging job I ever had. I coached girls high school basketball after that. Became an author in 2020, but for the last 11 years now, I've been battling a rare form of cancer. And then just sort of to tie this up, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and Mm -hmm. is an officer in the new branch of the military here in the U.S., the Space Force. Okay. What a journey, Terry. I don't even know where to go back there because in so many places we could make a pit stop and talk about this. So maybe one point that interests me is talking a bit about the time when you were a SWAT hostage negotiator. So how do you go from working in marketing, right, to then working as a customer service rep to being a hostage negotiator? What skills have you developed in those jobs that allow you to be an efficient negotiator? Yeah. So if you look at my resume, oh my gosh, this guy's all over the place, but there really is kind of a backstory. So my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the stories that my grandmother told of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son. My dad was an infant at the time. And come with us, your husband's been shot. And let's face it, trauma medicine in 1933 is a whole lot different than trauma medicine in 2023. So when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my father wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my, my calling, my purpose was in life. Like I said, my dad was dying when I graduated from college. So I had a choice. I could say, sorry, dad, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go blaze my own trail and be a police officer or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do and I'll go into business. So I think I, I don't, I don't say that was a bad time in my life. I learned a lot in the business world. I learned how to deal with people, people who didn't get along together. I learned how to be part of a team and things like that. And I think that was transferable when I got into SWAT and when I got into law enforcement. So I was a little late getting into law enforcement. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer But what I brought to the table was some life experience. I'd had the opportunity to talk to other people, to deal with other people. And even today, when people ask me, what should I do to prepare myself to get into law enforcement? I always tell them, put your devices down and go out on the street and talk to the homeless guy. And then go up to the penthouse and talk to that guy. Because if you can talk to people, you can be successful in law enforcement. If you're not able to talk to people, you're going to just be frustrated and not very happy in that line of work. That's so well said, Terry. 
Because like I would imagine law enforcement or being a paramedic or anything that's in service of others, you need those people skills and you need, I would imagine, to put people first and not anyone else. So if you don't have the people skills, you'll be tough. And I can see how your career shaped you up to to go down that path. It, it now, did it. Yeah. And you're right. And that's one thing I learned as a police officer. I may pull you over to give you a ticket for running a stop sign or speeding or something like that. And to you, that might be the scariest thing that happens to you all year. To me, it's the second traffic stop of the night. And I may make two or three more and I do it every night. So you're right. You have to understand that from your perspective, it's shaped one way. From the person you're in contact with, it's shaped a different way. And how you conduct yourself, we always used to say, depending on what you say and how you say it, you can turn a yes person into a no person or a no person into a yes person. Yes, absolutely. And I see that a lot in my life as well, because in my professional life, I operate a certain way. And sometimes in my personal life, I let my emotions get the best of me at times, meaning that I'm less diplomatic or I used to be less diplomatic in how I say things. And I can 100% see what you mean because it's not necessarily what you say, but it's how you say it as an individual. And that's a big lesson I've had to learn over, over my lifetime because I'm someone that speaks my mind, especially in personal relationships when I trust someone really deeply, but then words can hurt, right? And even though I have a beautiful message to share, maybe the way I'm sharing it is not the right way. So what, I mean, working with people and you having to go through that yourself, how did you overcome that? Realizing, okay, the way you talk to people is going to shape up how the relationship is going to evolve or the reaction or whatever you get out of it or what they get out of it. That's a great question. There was a formula that we had when I was on the SWAT team. And I'm going to try to remember now. It, it was, I think it was 738.55. And what okay. that stood for was how you were communicating your message. So if you were saying something to someone, 7% of that message got delivered by what you said, by the words that you used. 38% of it got delivered by the tone of voice that you used. Are you calm? Are you yelling? Are you upset? And then 55% of that message was delivered by your facial expressions and your body language. Wow. So if you think about it, it's not so much what we say, or even the tone of voice that we say, but it's, it's our body language. If I'm talking to you and I'm sitting there with my arms crossed or I got my head down and stuff, I'm not engaged. And whether you realize it or not, you pick up on that. He doesn't care what he's saying to me or he doesn't care what I'm saying to him. He's disengaged. He's disenfranchised to what I'm talking about. So it was real important for us to understand body language. And when we talked, especially in law enforcement, when we talked about use of force, there was a use of force continuum. And, and it started with what we called officer presence, just being there, just showing up. And what is your body language? What do you look like? Are you somebody who looks squared away? Or do you have mustard on your shirt and you look slovenly and things like that? If you're slovenly, chances are a bad guy might try to take you, might try to fight you or try to get away. But if you're squared away, just by your presence... That's how you present at the situation. And 55% of whatever message you're going to deliver comes, you don't have to say a word, just from you being there. So if you understand that, 
then it's a lot easier to, how am I going to deliver this message? Do I need to scream at this person? We used to tell, say it was ask, tell, and demand. So ask the person to do something. And if they don't do it, then tell them to do something. And then if they don't do it, then demand that they do something. And so that was how we were taught to communicate with people in a crisis or, or in a critical situation. Not just, hey, how's it going? I see you on the street, but we're there for a particular reason. Thank you for sharing that, Terry. And it, it surprised me to see that the wars themselves carry less than 10% impact in your conversations. And I'm someone that works in a professional environment and I do a lot of talking in front of small and large audiences. And I've come to realize the same thing you mentioned, the body language of not just yourself, but those that you are speaking with is so vital to truly understanding how the conversation is going and for you to be able to maneuver the conversation in a direction that will benefit both parties. And I've never heard it shared exactly like you did. And I love the way you, you phrased it. So I would imagine that what you've shared on the skills you developed that have helped you also in your personal life and in your professional life beyond the work in, poli in policing when you did your consulting business. So how have you been able to use everything you've learned there to not only conquer whatever came next, but your battle with cancer? What were some of the lessons that helped you the most along that journey? Yeah, I think any of us, and I think you would probably agree with me on this, any of us become successful in life, not in a vacuum, not by ourselves. We have a team, whether it's people we work with or it's our family or whoever it is, there are people that help us to get to where we need to be. And that certainly has been the case with me my entire life. We started out talking about the importance of what my parents taught us in terms yes. of family. And I think that's carried over to my friends. And I talk a lot about what I call my three Fs that have gotten me through, especially my cancer journey. The first one is faith. I have a very strong faith in God. I don't put that on anybody else. I understand that a lot of people don't. But I remember when I had my leg amputated in 2020, and I had these very large tumors in my lungs. And my oncologist, really funny story, showed me my CAT scan about eight months later. And I have no medical background. I don't know how to read a CAT scan or anything. But I can look at it and say, gee, that doesn't look like it should be there. And things like that. But I looked, I had these big tumors in my lungs. I had fluid all around the pleural spaces on the outside of my lungs. And I remember looking at my oncologist saying, how was I alive? And he got this smile on his face and shook his head and said, I have no idea because you shouldn't have been. Which said to me that God's not done with me yet. When I die, how I die, why? when I die, way above my pay grade. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. So faith is the first thing. Family is the second thing. And I mentioned, it's just my wife and daughter. And I do have brothers and my mother's still alive, but they're living out of state. And I remember when I had my leg amputated, my doctor wanted to put me on chemotherapy. And I looked at him, I was eight years into this cancer journey. And I said, is it going to save my life? He said, eh, probably not, but it might buy you some more time. And I said, well, if the outcome is going to be the same, if I'm still going to die, I don't think I want to go through that, but I'll go home and talk to my family. So I go home and it really did happen this way. So I start telling my wife and daughter what the doctor wants to do. And my daughter was like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something like that. And so we end up sitting around the kitchen table and individually talking about how everyone feels about me having chemotherapy. And when we're done with that, my daughter's like, all right, let's think about how many people want dad to have chemotherapy. And my wife and daughter raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I getting outvoted for something that I don't want to do? Yeah. And I remembered when I was in the police academy, 
Our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph, a picture of the people that we loved the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because I loved my family more than I loved myself. And in hindsight, it was the bridge that got me to where I am today. And then finally, friends. And this was really an eye-opener for me. There were people who I was positive when I got sick or when there was something really bad that happened, they would be there for me, you know, that they would rally. And, and a lot of those people did. A lot of those people couldn't handle the fact that I was 51 years old and probably wasn't going to live to see 55. And they were like, no, Terry, we can't deal with that. And then there were other people who I never expected to be there for me, who have been by my side and have never left me in the 11 years that I've been going through this. Faith, family, and friends have really been the catalyst that have gotten me through these last 11 years. I'll tell you what an inspiring journey there. And it's a beautiful way to, to look at life, right? And like you said, right, if you believe in God or not, you can still have faith in whatever you believe in. It could be yourself, your higher self. And it's the idea that you have hope, right? That the things will be better, the things will be okay, and you have control over that. And then the fact of family and friends I resonate with strongly because one of the things I realized on my journey, which started later in my life, is the power of community. So surrounding yourself with people that are somewhat like-minded, they don't have to think and act the same as you, but at least you have that common ground that together you'll be able to climb challenges. And like the example you gave that some friends, unfortunately, you know, left the picture and others came in. That's a powerful story in itself because that's what happens when we change as human beings, at least from my experience, right? Like we go on a path and the changes may scare some people. And in your case, it happened to be, unfortunately, a change that you had no control over, right? Like cancer just came to you. You had no control over that. But in some cases, there are changes that we make that we control, and then people will live our life. And I think for me, that's a very scary part. And for others as well, because I'm like, oh, I don't want to lose any of these friends or any of these family members if I'm going on this journey. But like your point when you said you made a choice for your family to do chemotherapy, at the end of the day, with some of the big choices we have to make, we have to think, okay, are we making them for ourselves or are we making them for others? You're right. I was going to say, the question I had for you there, in terms of you made a choice because you loved your family and they wanted you to be healthier and you said, you know what, I'm going to do this. In hindsight, do you think that's a choice you would repeat again if you were to go back for them? Or would you be like, you know what, I'm going to choose it for myself this time because I didn't know certain things, like the potential outcome or what would happen? It's easy to second guess yourself when you've been through it and you kind of look back and say that was the right decision. I still feel it was the right decision because there's there's absolutely no doubt in my mind I would not be here right now. I'd be in in the cemetery if I hadn't listened to that. And I guess it it made me it makes me feel good that I love my family more than I love myself. I mentioned I played basketball in college. I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and played Mm -hmm. all the way up until I was twenty one. And I think one of the things that at least for me it was team sports and. I think it can be whatever team you're part of, your family, your colleagues, your church, whatever team you're on, we're all on a certain team, is that what I learned from that 
is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Yes. You realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game we all play is this game of life. And as I mentioned, I was, I'm on a clinical trial drug now that more than likely is not going to save my life. It's keeping me stable right now, but I still have the tumors. But the way I look at it and the reason I continue to take the drug is maybe it's going to save the life of somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the data that the doctors are getting from my blood work and my scans and things like that. And to me, that's being part of something that's bigger than yourself. I'll never meet these people. I'll never know these people, but maybe they're going to have a better life. Maybe they're going to be able to be with their families longer based on the fact that I went through this, that somebody did the hard work at the beginning so that they can benefit from whatever this drug is able to do for them. Wow, that's such a powerful message, Teddy. And I think more of us can learn from that. And it doesn't have to be with a disease like you're suffering from. It could be with other things in life. We can make progress in life for ourselves, but also for those around us. People you may not even know yet, people that may have not even walked into your life. Such a powerful message. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So when you were going through the initial stages of your cancer battle, what were some of the toughest challenges you had to overcome and how did you overcome them? Yeah, that's a great question. I was like everybody else, just living my life. I, I was coaching basketball. I was a dad. I was a husband. I had friends and things like that. And then I had this callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And initially don't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor, a friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I could cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have him looked at. And then two weeks later, I received that phone call from him. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years and I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. I have a rare form of melanoma, which most people think of as too much exposure to the sun. Mine has absolutely nothing to do with sun exposure. It's a rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And I think I went through all the stages that we would associate with grief initially. First, it was denial. I can't possibly have cancer. I've done everything right in my life. And then you get mad. I, I've done everything right in my life. Why, why do I have this? And then our daughter was in high school. I was 51 years old. Our daughter was in high school and it was a bargaining with God. Look, let me live long enough to see her graduate from high school. And then I got, I got down. I felt sorry for myself. And then I got to a point where I said, this sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace the suck, for lack of a better word. I've been dealt these cards. I don't like these cards at all, but I'm going to have to play them to the best of my ability. And I think one of the things that I learned, I learned it when I was in high school, but it really solidified, I think, when I, when I got cancer, was the importance of controlling your mind. Because if you don't control, your mind is going to control you. And so it was the importance of Yes, I'm scared. And I don't want anybody you know, who's listening to us 
You're looking at me now. There's no S on my chest. I do not have a cape and fly around with magical power. I have down days. I cry. I feel sorry for myself. I get down. I'm a human being. But I just don't let myself stay there. And I really think it is a choice that all of us can make, whether we want to be up or we all or we want to be down. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. And it doesn't have to be cancer pain or even any kind of an illness. We could break up with our boyfriend or a girlfriend or the plane we're leaving on for vacation, the flight gets canceled, or we don't get the promotion at work that we think we deserve. Pain in our lives is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering's optional. Suffering's what you do with that pain. Do you use it to make you a stronger and more resilient individual? Or do you feel sorry for yourself and wallow in it and want other people to feel sorry for you? Like I said, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. It's really what you do with that pain. Can you take the ugliness in your life? And as you and I were talking before we started recording, can you take that ugliness and use it to your benefit? Find a way to make you stronger, to make you more resilient, to make you more appreciative of the life that you have, the people that are in that life. There's always something. There's always a silver lining into the ugliness and the pain that we deal with. It's just a matter if you want to look for it and use it once you find it. Such an inspiring message there, Teddy, and story. So let me ask you this as a follow-up. You mentioned the big TFs, right? Faith, family, friends. And of course, the behavior journey, you were a bit more upset. You went through the stages of grief. But then because you embraced the positive side of it, despite the massive challenges, it allowed you to get closer to your faith, get closer to your family, and closer to your friends. So to me, it sounds like you embraced the positivity in such a tough scenario. Why not ignoring the tough part? The tough part was still there, but you embraced the positivity and you led from a positive mindset instead of keeping yourself down in the negative, which would always perpetuate more negativity. Am I correct in assuming that based on what you're saying? Yes, you are absolutely right about that. People ask me, how do you do that? How do you control your mind? How do you handle hard things? And what I tell them is, and I try to do this every day of my life, do one thing every day in your life that scares you, that makes you nervous, that you know, is potentially embarrassed or or whatever. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us, or we get let go from our job, or we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle that pain, to handle that difficulty when it presents itself than those people who are just like, hey, you know what? I'm good. I'm comfortable. If you're comfortable, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're dying. I always tell people, do one thing every day, whatever it is, get up an hour earlier or go to the gym when you don't feel like it. Or I was talking to a friend of mine who I've convinced to do He's in a wheelchair as well. And he said, it was getting towards the end of the day. And I promised myself I would go outside and I would wheel around, get some fresh air. And I hadn't done that. And I was just going to say, oh, the heck with it. It's time to go to bed. But it's no, I don't want to do it. So I'm going to do it. Like I said, it doesn't have to be, you know, like I'm going to go do 5,000 pull-ups or something like that. It can be as simple. Like for me, I hate the dentist. But, you know, the other day I picked up the phone and I called and made my six-month appointment. And I'm sure your listeners are like, that's no big deal. But it is when you hate the dentist. What's uncomfortable for me may not be uncomfortable for you. So find those things in your life that you don't like to do and just Do one of those things every day. And like I said, you'll be much more resilient when the big disasters hit us in our lives. Wow, that's a tool that anyone can do, right? And 
you have to start small, see how it makes you a better person, how you learn, how you grow, and take it from there. That's definitely something I'll be learning from and doing in my own life. I know you you talked a bit about your journey at the beginning. You went through the stages of grief. I would imagine those weren't quick, right? Each stage must have taken a bit of time and a lot of learning on your side. Which one was the most difficult stage for you to get over and get through with? I think part of it was the anger. Because when I, you know, I mentioned that my father was dying of cancer when I graduated from college. I'm still a kid. I'm still young. And I, I, re- I remember he had end-stage breast cancer. And I'm going to make an excuse for him. My dad was of a generation where men didn't really go to the doctor. I mean, they just gutted it out. And whatever the problem was, they just kept moving forward. And my dad knew he was sick for months and chose not to go to the doctor. And I made a decision when he got sick. It was like, no, you know what? And I was always an athlete. So I was always exercising, eating and things like that. I knew about those things. But I promised myself, and I did. Every year I had a physical exam with my doctor. Every, whatever the doctor recommends, it's time for a colonoscopy. Well, nobody likes that. But okay, I'll do that because I'm going to do the things that are going to give me the opportunity to stay as healthy as I can for as long as I can. I also had a genetic test done of all 88 genes that doctors either know of or suspect cause every form of cancer that we know about. And I have no mutations in any of my genes, which really begs the question, why did I get this incredibly rare form of cancer? And for 11 years, nobody's been able to answer that. Nobody's been able to tell me why, but the bottom line is I have it. I had made a decision and I had stuck to that to do everything I could to make sure I was healthy. And then bang, I get hit with this rare form of cancer that at the time was a death sentence. They had absolutely no way to treat the melanoma that I had. They actually told me that if I got a miracle, I'd live five years. Otherwise, I'd probably be dead in a year or two. And here it is 11 years later, and I'm still here. So I I think the anger part, the mad part, was really the thing that took me the longest to get over because, like I said, I'd done everything to be healthy. And, you know, all of a sudden I get hit with this disease that nobody can tell me why I got it. Yeah. That's, and I can definitely see that, right? I can't even imagine what you've gone through, but I can see how anger would be a tough one because you've done everything right. Had you not done your physical, had you not done the research, then you could be like, I could have done more. But you really did everything you could. Do you still find that anger shows up in your life even after all the work you've done? Because I would imagine it's not something that fully goes away with most of us. In all honesty, when you were saying that question, I'm like, oh, when was the last time I, I was angry? When was the last time? I, for me, it really doesn't. I'm, I guess, appreciative, thankful, grateful, whatever word you want to use for this extra time that I have. Like I said, they told me with a miracle, I'd live five years. 11 years later, I'm still here. And it is, it's kind of funny where I was initially treated it was MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And every year I get a letter from their tumor board which is basically they're following up from a research point of view that asked me to circle one of three options. Either I am alive with cancer, I am alive without cancer, or I'm dead. And I I haven't figured out how to circle the third one if I do die. So I keep hanging around because I haven't figured that out yet. I don't get mad that often. I get frustrated sometimes, just too much going on or whatever. But it's not an emotion that gets you anywhere. I mean, my grandmother used to say worry or anger is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. So I I love that from her. And it was like, so you can get angry, 
what's the upside? And for me, I haven't found that, especially, and don't get me wrong, when, when I didn't have kids, yeah, I used to get mad all the time. But now it's changed my perspective that it's not worth the time and the energy to get mad anymore. Exactly. And, you know, like you said, you have all, you've been given a chance to have all this extra time. And why not put it to good use like you're doing right now, sharing your beautiful story and message with those that may be going through something similar that they can relate with. So let's talk a bit about some of your hardest time through your journey. I know you mentioned in a previous conversation we had and in your profile that you had some really painful days and weeks and you had to come up with strategies to cope with the crazy pain you're dealing with. Can you talk a bit about that and how you've overcome such a challenge? Sure. So when I was first diagnosed, the initial treatment was to take the tumor out of the bottom of my foot and they took all the lymph nodes out of my left groin. And after that, th there was no treatment. It was just surgery. That's all we could do for you. So my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. It was not a cure. The side effects of the interferon for me was that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And as I said, that was not a cure. That was as my oncologist used to say, we're trying to kick the can down the road and buy you more time for something to come available that we can treat you. And so I remember being in that, that five-year period. And I, was, I always said there was a difference between living and not dying. And I felt like I was in the not dying phase of life. I really didn't feel I was contributing anything. I was sick all the time. There was a point where I was just so sick of being sick that I literally prayed to die. I, I mean, it was like, okay, God, come on. This isn't living. This is just not dying. Just take me. I, I never contemplated suicide or anything like that. But I honestly thought, why am I going through that? I'm not doing anything. You know what I mean? I used to talk about winning the day and sometimes winning the day for me was getting out of bed and walking to the couch where I would spend the day. I was just, we've all had the flu. I was just so sick. You have a lot of time to be with yourself. You have a lot of time to be in your own head. And so during that time, I came up with what I call my four truths. And these truths, I'll give them to you. I have them on a post-it note here in my office. So I see them multiple times during the day and they constantly get reinforced in my mind. And they're just one sentence each. So the first one is, and we've talked a lot about this, I think, already, is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. Yes. The second one we've talked a little bit about is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain to make you stronger and more resilient. The third one I look at as a legacy type of truth, and it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one, I think is pretty self-explanatory. It's as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I look at those four truths as what I call sort of the bedrock of my soul. They're just a, they're just a good place to sort of anchor your life and to try to build a quality life off of. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question. Wow, but that's an amazing answer. I can't even imagine a better answer than that, Daddy. So thank you so much. Sure. I love all four points you mentioned there. And of course, when did you realize point number three specifically, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people? Because I bet that was such a big aha moment when it came to you. Most people have heard of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Fred Rogers, 
educated so many kids, including me, on public television growing up. And I remember when Fred Rogers died back in 2003, I read a story that his family was going through his personal effects and they found his wallet. And inside his wallet was a scrap piece of paper on which he had written four words. And those four words were, life is for service. I love that. And when I had my leg amputated and I found out I had these tumors in, in my lungs, I went with my wife to the mortuary and to the cemetery and to the church, and I planned my funeral. And because I go on these podcasts and, and I, I speak to people in person about motivation and the need to keep moving forward, some people kind of you know took me to task on that and commented that somehow planning my funeral was in some way defeatist. And I remember kind of laughing and saying to these folks, well, the last time I checked, I think we're all going to die. As far as I know, nobody's working on a cure for life right now. All of us are going to die, but not all of us are really going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that I absolutely love. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to hasten my demise in any way, shape, or form. But death is not nearly as scary for me as it is for other people because I believe I lived the purposes for which I was put on this world to do. Wow. I don't even know how to add to that. That's so amazing, Terry. And all those quotes you shared, all those lessons that are so beautiful. And I mean, to me, that explains why you continue to live despite doctors saying you should have died six, seven years ago or even more, because you have such a beautiful message to share and you are making an impact in the lives of others through the medicine you're taking that you're not even going to know what's going to happen down the road and these messages that you're sharing with others, which in turn are giving you so much because they're making you feel and learn more, I would imagine, because you're seeing the impact they can have on those around you. Such beautiful messages. So... The fourth one you said is, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I would imagine during your journey with counselors, at least at the beginning, you probably felt like quitting at times. Or So I know you mentioned you, want, you prayed that you know this would end and God would take you. Was it in that moment you realized, wait a second, I have a choice. If I don't quit, I can never be defeated. So I can do something with the, the set of cards I've been dealt. I guess the way I look at it is, and one of the big things I've learned is we quit, we give up, we give in long before we ever should. And I'll tell you a quick story. Back in the 1950s, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University who did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And initially, the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them in the exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. So think about that. First time, 15 minutes. 15 minutes, I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to fail. I'm going to die. Second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. And I think you mentioned this earlier, the importance of hope in our lives that maybe not today, maybe not next month, maybe not even this year, but at some point in time, 
if we keep doing what we're doing, our life will get better. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. So yes, there have been plenty of times where I wish I would have quit or I felt like quitting and giving up. But then you realize your physical body can handle so much more kick pain, so much more discomfort than we ever think. And I've seen that so many times in life where people will start down the road toward a goal or something they want to do. And something gets in their way. An impediment gets there. They butt up against something and they can't go on and they can't figure out how to get over that impediment. And so they quit. But they don't just quit. We blame people. We want to find somebody to blame. We want to blame our parents or our boss or our station in life. Very few people take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. And I think that, yes, do I want to quit? Absolutely. I absolutely want to quit. There was a football player here in the United States, Hall of Fame football player by the name of Jerry Rice, who had a quote, and and he went like this. He said, today I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. It's a matter of, yes, I want to quit. Yes, I want to give up. It would be easy to do that. But think about what you're going to be able to do tomorrow if you don't quit, if you don't give up. So many people quit when they're tired. Be a person who quits when they're done. Powerful message again, Terry. So much wisdom in all the conversations we've had so far. And when it comes to Expanding on this, you said people look usually for blaming someone else. And I've been there myself many times in life. And I will tell you my experience, and I'm curious to see what you've come to realize yourself. But in my case, growing up in Eastern Europe, right, in the communist era, going to school there, having all these people in my life that would tell me I need to do this and this to stay safe, to get a good education, to do all the things in life according to what they thought would be best. Right? And no one wanted something negative for me. Everyone wanted what was best. And growing up in any society, I imagine, you always listen to your parents, society, teachers, which means that you're always listening to the outside forces telling you what to do. Because, of course, you're a child. You come into this world, like you said, with nothing really. You're crying. You need help. But as you grow up, I think we're taking the same mentality and we are not challenging it. It's like, wait a second. Should I be always listening to those outside of me or look for answers outside of me? Which means, of course, also blaming people because if I'm taking advice from you, I can also blame you. Or should we look inwards and realize that we have the choices or we have the free will to make the choices that can dictate our success or failure? Which means that if something goes wrong, we first should look inwards before we start blaming someone else. And that's at least how I've seen it. And that was a huge aha moment for me because I'll be honest, I was exactly like the person you described there. I was someone that I didn't get a promotion. I was blaming my manager doesn't see the value in me, my, you know, or his manager, or, you know, I put all this work and they don't, they don't reward me. But I looked inwards and I said, I could have done things differently. I could have approached a conversation differently, or I could have started it earlier. I could have done many other things, which allowed me in the case, for example, to put plans in motion to improve myself to the point when the discussion came up again. It wasn't like they had no choice. They had to be like, you know what? We see Constantine, he's doing these things. And that can be applied to many things in life. And that was a huge aha moment for me. Yeah, and I think what you just described there is, is maturity or emotional intelligence. You learned that lesson. And I think one of the best ways to glean that lesson, there, there was a book called Do Hard Things. And it's written by a man by the name of Steve Magnus. 
Great book. I would recommend it to anybody. But in that book, he tells the story of a researcher or a psychologist, I don't remember who the person was, who did a very simple experiment, mostly with young people. He took young people and he put them in a room that had no windows in it. The only thing in the room was a table and a chair. And they were not allowed to take any cell phones, iPads, buds, anything. There was nothing you could take in there with you. The only other thing in the room was a buzzer that was on the table. And if you pressed a buzzer, you got an electric shock. And basically, he didn't tell them how long they would stay in there, but it was about 15 minutes. 78% of the men, or excuse me, 75% of the men and 28% of the women shocked themselves, including one person who shocked himself every five seconds, which said to me that the first thing we need to do is be comfortable, like you said, with us, with who we are. Not, oh my gosh, somebody said something about me on Twitter or Facebook, and I internalize that, and I live that. No. And, and, and I do this every day, ever since I read that. I, I do this, and I don't think I had a problem with it before, but I would another thing I would recommend to your audience, spend five or 10 minutes every day just being alone with yourself. I'm not talking about meditating or anything like that, but just sit quietly by yourself for five or 10 minutes every day. Let your mind go wherever it wants to go. Let it wander wherever it wants to be. But that's how you get comfortable with you. And I think that's one of the biggest problems, especially with young people, is they're not comfortable with who they are. They're comfortable with who other people say or what other people say about them on social media. And that's how they determine their identity. No, you got you to figure out who you are and say, that person says they don't like my outfit or they don't like my hair or they don't like whatever it is. Why do you care? Why do you care what that person thinks or says or does? You are on your own journey. And I've seen this, and I, and I bet you've seen this too, where people will be like, hey, that, that guy drives a really nice car or that woman makes a million dollars a year. And instead of being happy for them, congratulations, you've done that, we're jealous. Why don't I have a million dollars? Or why don't I drive that nice car? We get out of our lane. It's, you know what? You have unique gifts and talents. You don't have the same gifts and talents as the million dollar woman or the guy who's driving the nice car. They have their own talents. Maybe you're not designed to make a million dollars a year. Maybe you're going to do something else. Maybe you're going to find the cure for cancer. Maybe whatever it is you're going to do. But instead of being appreciative or thankful or happy for those people, we get jealous. And I think that's one of our biggest problems because now it's, I want to be like that. No, and I, and I talk a lot about character. And character is, I always say, character is caught, not taught. So you're not going to read a book and say, okay, I got great character because I read this book. You know, you're going to have good character because you see somebody do something and you're like, oh yeah, that, that's the way it should be done. That's the right way to do that kind of thing. And part of having good character is realizing what your gifts and talents are and staying on your path and being thankful or happy for the other people in your lives that have things that maybe you're never supposed to have, or maybe you'll get it down the road, but why, why are you mad at somebody who's successful? Yeah. Be happy for them. Exactly. It's a, such a powerful message, right? It's one, again, reframing it, right? From looking at the negative side only, like allowing fear or jealousy, right? Which are very closely connected to looking at the positive side of things and realizing that when you put your power or give your power away to others, you're always worrying about what someone thinks or what someone does or doesn't do. 
instead of bring that power back inwards and do that soul search. And that was, that, that was a huge aha moment for me as well. You described a few scenarios there. I could see my younger self in many of those, right? Yeah. And I was trying to impress people I didn't even like, but I was trying to impress them. I was always worried about what others would think. You know, I have some gray in my beard. Maybe I should dye it black. So, you know, people like me more. And it wasn't until, like you said, I became aware of some of these destructive elements of my life. And I had to sit with myself. And it wasn't by choice at the beginning. Because I had a huge aha moment about this time last year after a mental health retreat I did in Ecuador. And when I came back, I was so full of life. But then reality sank in. And I went in a depressive state for a while. And I've never been depressed in my life. So I had no idea what was I dealing with. But it was all about sitting with my own emotions, allowing them to surface, things I've never allowed to surface in the past. And it was tough, right? Nothing like you've gone through, but it was tough for me because it was like emotions. I'm like, no, I want to keep them buried. I don't want to feel about or think about this. But in allowing them to come up, and this is only in hindsight that I realized this, it was necessary for me to realize what I want to do in life, how I want to lead my own life, what I should leave behind. You know, this, this idea of like giving my power away to others and worrying about what others think. And don't get me wrong, I still have it in the back of my mind occasionally. I'll be like, oh, how does a person think of me? Or how am I seen? Or doing this podcast, how are people going to interpret what I say or how I look or my, my body language? So that's how I would imagine it's a work in progress for most people. And it still is for me, but it started with that awareness. Because if we're not aware that's happening and that we have a choice, why would we ever change? You're right. And I think one of the, one of sort of the epiphany moments for me, and again, I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier. Our parents want these things for us. Learn from the people that are around us. Who's, our, who's in our inner circle? Are those people you know, making us better or are they detracting from us? Are they all about drama? I always say, if you've got people that aren't making you better, get them out of your life. But the epiphany moment for me was, and you see this in especially Western society, we tend to think, that we are born empty. And that after school or the military, whatever you get into life, that your job is to consume, to fill yourself up. We're born empty, so I gotta have a nice car. I gotta get a lot of money. I gotta live in a nice place. I gotta have a good looking spouse. I gotta have great kids. And we take all this stuff in and we fill ourselves up. What I'm suggesting or what I think it is, is it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full. And our job in life is to empty ourselves out for the betterment of ourselves, our family, our community, our world, our God, whatever you believe. But instead of saying, I'm empty, I got to fill myself up. What if we looked at life and said, I'm full. And my job is to make you better, to make you better, to help you, to, to do that. Now, all of a sudden, we're not focused on ourselves. We're focused on what we can give to the world. And in that process, grow ourselves a lot as well. Exactly. Because I, it reminds me of another epiphany for myself was very similar to what you just said is in earlier in life, I started coaching and mentoring. I'm the type of person that once I pick up a skill, I want to share with those that want to also learn the skill, be it a computer game, or I used to play poker professionally at one stage of my life, and then I became a coach and a mentor. And in that time when I was doing this was my early 20s, I would coach poker and mentor people on this journey. And I realized that I was actually learning a lot by just 
sharing with others. So even though, let's say, Terry, you came to me and I was teaching you, in that process of teaching you, I was actually learning so much myself about the game, about the men mental side of it, but also about myself. And I think once we stop and realize, wait a second, in mentoring someone, it doesn't, and no one has to pay for it, right? Like I mentor people in my corporate job right now and I don't get paid for it. I do it because I love giving back to your point, but also because I'm learning so much myself, learning about communication, interaction, or a part of the job I didn't realize I could learn about from someone that just started or is younger in career than me. And I think that's such an important message to, to leave people with that, hey, whatever your skills are, and all of us have skills to your point, right? And they're different. Why not think about how you can share those with those around you? Regardless of what's in it for you at the beginning, because you may not realize what's in it for you until you do it. You're right. I mean, there, there's a, a fairly popular book out right now called Give and Take by Adam Grant. And he talks about the three types of people, which are givers, takers, or matchers. Givers are just that. They, they give, they help, they want to make a difference. And in return, they get as much as they give. Then there are the takers. It's all about me. What can I give? And then there are the matchers where I'll give you something, but I got to get something in return. It's kind of a quid pro quo type of thing. And basically the conclusion of the book is it's not the, the people that are cutthroat that, that get ahead in business and things like that. It's actually the givers. And he cites numerous examples in the book of people who are very famous who like wrote for the Simpsons television show and were in the music industry and said, hey, what if you did it this way? Or hey, I'm going to write you a lyric to a song. And well, do you want a royalty for that? No, no, no. I'm just giving it to you. Again, the giving part of it. And now everybody comes to that person and says, hey, will you help me with my lyrics? Will you help me? So now he's found a way to monetize giving. When, it, like you say, at the beginning, you don't know. You're just kind of, I'm going to teach poker and I'm going to, I'm also going to learn about myself as I'm doing this. Like you said, you get as much out of it as you give to that other person. Yeah. And I would argue sometimes you can get much more out of the exchange. You're right. Because you don't yeah. even realize that there may be planting seeds that you can reap the rewards of much later in life. Right. And that was such a beautiful realization for me because I'm like, for me at least, I've always felt good giving back. And my biggest aha moment last year when I decided I'm going to do this podcast and this is my mission for the podcast, it was the idea that, wait a second, I'm mentoring people, I'm helping people, I'm sharing with them. And that's when I actually feel at my best. After a conversation with someone, I even an exchange like you and I are doing right now, I feel a lot more energized. I feel happier. I feel lighter. I feel like a million dollars and nothing else in life makes me feel that way. And there's a magic in there that until you do it a few times, you don't necessarily get to realize it. Because no one teaches you this in school, right? No. In school is not. In school, it's about being yourself, being at the top of the class, right? Always climbing above everyone else. So you get at the top. So you're the taker in the example you gave. Yeah. When I was growing up, there was a basketball coach at UCLA by the name of John Wooden. And he had a definition of success that, that I've taken to myself. I've never found a better one. And this is what he said. Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you did the best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. Not everybody, as you said, is an A student. But if you do your best and get a C, that's great. If you don't do your best, if you just are lackadaisical about it and you get an A or a B, are you really successful? 
yeah, you got an A and that's how we define success. But have you really pushed yourself? Have you really tried harder? Could you have done more as opposed to the person who got a C? You're like, I gave it everything I had and I still was only able to get a C. We're, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're not all the same. We're, we don't have the same gifts and talents. You might be good at math. I may be good at writing. What if we put all those skills together? You can help me with this and I can help you with that. And, and it just makes the world a better place as opposed to it's all about me. I've got to be successful. I've got to have I, I, I. It's like when you're, when you speak to a group, if it's all about you, nobody's going to care. Even if you got the greatest story in the world, I don't care. Tell me how your story can help me as a member of the audience listening to you. It's got to be what you give, the value you give to other people. Exactly. And once people realize that, I think there's no going back. Once you realize the power in that, and like you said, to make the world a better place, and the world doesn't have to be this grand thing, you know, the entire world or saving the planet. It's your immediate world. Like you become a better version of yourself, and all of a sudden those around you will see benefit. Exactly. And then the snowball effect comes in and everyone benefits and it gets bigger and bigger. Such a beautiful message there, Terry. Let me ask you this. It's a question I like to ask a lot of guests on the show. If you were to be able to go back in time, usually ask for 10 years, but I should take your example with cancer at the beginning of your cancer journey. And you could talk to your younger self and you can give yourself one or two pieces of advice that will help you through that journey. What would that be? That's a great, that's a great question. What would it be? I guess I, I would say, one, you can handle so much more than you think you can. You can handle so much more pain, so much more anxiety, so much more suffering, for lack of a better word, than you actually think you can. Your body can handle that. The second thing I would say, and that I've learned, I, I, had a, I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like. I had my foot amputated in 2018 and then my leg in 2020. And she asked me, what was it like to have your foot amputated and my leg amputated? And I said, well, you know, it certainly hasn't been easy. I'm old, so trying to learn how to walk again, much more difficult than if I was younger. And, but what I said to her was, cancer can take all my physical faculties. But cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are. That's who everybody who's listening to us is. And we spend a lot of time, like you were talking about before, is there gray in my beard? Should I do something? Is my hair right? Am I wearing the right clothes? Am I driving the right car? Am I doing the right things? And I just, I just think you, you get to a point where none of that matters. It, it really has, it has absolutely no effect. And we spend a lot of time on our physical appearance. But we don't spend a lot of time on who we really are, yeah, which is our heart, our mind, and our soul. So I would suggest to everybody that, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're a go to the gym person, go to the gym, eat right, get enough rest, reduce stress, all the stuff we know how to take care of our physical bodies. But spend a little time each day working on who you really are, which is your heart, your mind, and your soul. I spent a lot of time doing that today that I really wasn't even thinking about that before I got cancer. And that's a, likely, in my mind at least, a big reason why you're still here today, because you're nourishing all those parts of yourself and allowing yourself to grow and share that beautiful journey, as challenging as it is, with everyone around you. And you're sharing that positivity. Beautiful, Terry. I know you wrote a book. Would you like to tell our audience a bit about what inspired you to write the book? 
and what they sure. can potentially find if they were to pick up the book. Sure. The book is called Sustainable Excellence, The 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And it was really a book born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former that I had coached in high school who had moved to Colorado with her fiance where my wife and I live. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. She got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents, and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man reach out to me on social media. And he said, you know, what do you think are the most important things that I should learn to not just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? And I didn't want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are absolutely important. But I wanted to see if I could maybe go a little bit deeper with him. So I spent some time and I eventually kind of came up with these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, I've got a life story that fits underneath that principle where I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three to four month period where I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day. And I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. And the principles are not in any order. Number one is not any more important than number seven or anything like that. But it's always fun for me as the author when somebody reaches out because there's always one principle that seems to be sort of the linchpin that resonates with that person. And it, I wrote all 10 of them. And, and there's even one that does that for me. And I'll give it to you. It's this. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that in my life. I wanted to do something. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Like you, we were talking before, what are people going to say about me if I think? Mm -hmm. yeah. Or do I have enough knowledge or skill or information to, to be successful at that? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with, man, I, I want to do this. And I always tell, especially young people when I talk to them in person, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yes. Yeah, beautiful message. And it's almost like you're speaking with me there or to me there, because that's one of my biggest challenges as well that I had to overcome. When I started putting the idea of the podcast on paper, I saw myself doubt. And I'm like, who am I to bring this message across? Who am I to create this? What if I do this and people won't like it? Or what if, instead of stepping back and being, you know what, this is what comes from my heart. This is what I believe my purpose is, or at least a piece of my purpose. So why not do it? It scares the heck out of me, but why not do it? Why not try it? At least, like you said, I'm not going to look back 10 years in the future and be like, I wish I would have done that then. Yeah. I tried it. I may have failed, but I'm going to be successful because I'm following my heart and I'm putting my own choices and my own work into it. And I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned through all of this is that you can manifest things in your life or you can abide by, let's say, the law of attraction, think about it and it will happen. But really, at the bottom of it is actually doing the work. I can say, you know what? 
whatever I want in life is going to happen. But it's not going to just magically happen. Yeah, maybe I'll win the lottery. Some people win the lottery, but most of us won't. So how do we put the work in to get to that point? And I, that's why I love that message so much. Yeah, it's, I was doing a, doing a podcast about six months ago with a former professional football player here in the United States. And this guy's six foot six, like 310 pounds. I remember he put his forearm up on the, on the desk and it blocked out the camera. That's how big this guy was. And we were talking afterwards and he said, Terry, when I first started my podcast, I was scared to death. I was afraid that nobody would listen to me. And like you said, who am I to bring this message to people and things like that? And I told him about my story of podcasting. I just started a motivational speaking business and then COVID hit. And so many other businesses, I had to figure out a different way to deliver my message. And somebody had reached out to me and said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And I said, sure. What's a podcast? I had absolutely <laughs> no idea what a podcast was. He said, well, I'm going to ask you some questions. And we just talked, you know, we're having a cup of coffee. And I'm like, oh, you're going to ask me questions. Okay, good. And I put post-it notes all around the camera. And he would ask me a question and I would lean in and read the post-it note. I was terrible. I didn't have good stories. It was not concise. It wasn't, it, I was bad. But like you said, you learn. I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to get better at doing this. And I remember talking to my publisher of my book and I, I told him, I said, I listen to every podcast I've ever been on because I want to be a better guest. I want to have better stories. I want to make it tighter and more concise. And he said, no, Terry, it's not about being good. It's just about not sucking. And I'm like, thanks for the title of my next book. Just don't suck. Thank you very much. But I said, no, that's not what it's about for me. It's wanting to be a good guest so that the host can have a good podcast. Again, what can I give to you as a podcast host, as opposed to what am I going to get out of being on your show? It's not about that for me. It's about what I can give to you, what I can give to the audience. But yeah. it's just a different way of looking at things. And we all, I think, feel scared when we start new things. It's, I don't know if I'm going to be successful, but I'll end it with this. I remember Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, used to have a saying. He said, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Yes. So as long as I learn something from a failure, from something that doesn't go right, you're not a loser. You're only a loser if you start blaming somebody else for the thing you didn't get in life. Exactly. Absolutely. And I abide by that too. I, when I joined Microsoft as a professional, one of the foreign subjects to me was this idea of a growth. What's growth mindset? And then looking into it and doing reading, and I'm like, wow, that's a beautiful way of looking at things. And it resonates very well with the quote you said and everything you've just mentioned. The idea that you can embrace falls, right? That you can embrace a bit of failure and learn from it, as opposed to having it stop you from making any further progress. Because you can be scared or you're like, oh, this is too tough. I don't want to disappoint anyone or imagine what people may think of me. So that's really beautiful. Terry. And I guess I'll, I'll add one more thing and I'll ask you this as well, right? You talk about the 10 principles and how some people resonate with specifically one or two in there. And I actually really like that message because you're not prescribing anyone and say, hey, you got to follow all 10 to be happy in life or to achieve A, B, or C. It's like almost like they're tools, right? They're, they're a tool you can apply and see, does the work for you? Is there something you resonate with? And then go with that. And everything that we talked about today is the same, right? Just because something worked for you or me doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. Yeah, why not I don't have all the answers. And, I, and if I come across that way, then that's my fault. I just tell people, look, here's yeah. what I've experienced and, and here's what I've learned. 
And if you can take something from that, if you can take all of it and incorporate it into your life, great. I, that, that would make me feel great. But if maybe pieces that you can grab out of it, they, those work for you too, then that's fine as well. Like I said, you're looking at me. There's no S on my chest. I don't fly around with a cape and have magical <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> You know, well, that's a beautiful message, Teddy. And I resonate with it 100% because, you know, what one person in the audience may take from this is going to be vastly different than what someone else will take. And we've talked for over an hour, and there's so much wisdom in that. And I find it hard to believe that certain people won't find value in that. And the beauty of this, and the way I see it as well, is that I've listened to podcasts for the better part of a decade. And some of the earlier podcasts I listened to, maybe my mind wasn't as open, but the seeds were planted. And then I reap the value of those many years down the road, in some cases, maybe weeks, maybe days, but in many cases, many years. And sometimes we are, at least I see myself as a human being here, I have to maybe hear a message said to me in multiple ways before I'm like, oh yeah, now I, now I truly understand. And now it resonates with me. And that's why I find the beauty in this is that we can have a conversation and someone will say, you, yes. Even though they may have heard the same message five times before or 50. <laughs> yeah. It's like everything else alive. It's not so much the right message as it is the right message at the right time. Exactly. You know, when you're receptive, when you're open to hear it. I've heard that five times before. Then why didn't you do it? Because it wasn't ready for it yet. I, my mind wasn't open. I was not as mature, whatever. Yeah. And it kind of almost gave me an aha moment now. It's like going back to what you're saying at the beginning of the discussion when you were in the police academy and the hospital talking about the 7% and 38% and 55%. So if the words don't matter, maybe it's how we say them, right? The body language, who says them. It's almost like it's a variation of all of that to get a message across. So I love this study. Thank you so much for everything you've shared so far. But before I let you go, where can people find you and get in touch with you and find out more? Yeah, I have a blog every day. I put up a thought for the day. and With that thought usually comes a question about how you might apply that thought into your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which is usually video or story that I find online that I think would resonate with people. All of that is at motivationalcheck.com. You can leave me a message there. And as long as you message me in English, I will absolutely, you know, because <laughs> people message me in some language. I have no idea what that person just said to me. But if you message me in English, I will absolutely get back to you. Tony, this has been such a pleasure. I've learned so much. And I want to thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your personal stories challenges and lessons. And I cannot wait to speak with you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Constantine, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you today as well. Thank you for being with us today. To find out more amazing content or episodes, please go to unleashedisolve.com or find us on social media.